Please the Podcast. Good day, listeners, and welcome to On Trial. I'm your host, Christopher DiGennaro, a commercial litigation lawyer with a focus on trial practice at Foley & Lardner in the firm's New York office. Today, we have a special guest, my dear friend, Sabrina Mizrahi, Vice President for Litigation and Global Product Regulatory at the Estee Lauder Companies. In addition to being an experienced and accomplished trial lawyer, having worked at large law firms throughout the country, Sabrina has many years' experience managing litigations and trials from inside the company. And today, she shares both perspectives, outside trial lawyer and in-house counsel. She talks about jury selection as the most important part of a trial, particularly from the perspective of an in-house lawyer, agility as the most important skill of a trial lawyer, and interestingly, how to decide from inside a company whether to take a case to trial. Of course, Sabrina also shares some trial war stories, including her very first trial on a major Superfund case in Miami, Florida, and a substantial plaintiff's verdict on a product's liability trial after she'd moved in-house. Please enjoy the podcast, and I'll be back with you for summation. Well, Sabrina, I'm really excited to have you here as a guest today, not just because I count you as a good friend, but also because you have such great and interesting experience, both as a law firm lawyer and an in-house lawyer, where I know you've participated in a number of trials. So I'm really excited to hear about your experience and your views. But to start, why don't you tell us about your current role? So right now, I work at the Estee Lauder Companies. I'm the Vice President of Litigation and Global Product Regulatory. And part of my role is to cover all litigation globally in all capacities with the exception of IP. So that's quite a role. And I want to talk to you about how you handle and cover litigation from inside the company, particularly with a view towards trial. But before we do that, I'd love to talk about your experience, including as an in-house lawyer. Were your previous roles all in the litigation context? Tell us about them. They've all included litigation, but the first three jobs were environmental focused, but also litigation. And then this job and the last one were both in consumer products as last one was at Colgate-Palmolive was litigation only, litigation and product regulatory. And then at the law firm, I was at a big law firm for 10 years and in-house. I was in the environmental group, which was part of litigation, and I did 90% environmental litigation. And what does that look like, by the way? Well, it varies by person. So there are a lot of science nerds, which is not what I was. I was the litigator, so I was parachuting into cases, learning the statute, Clean Air Act, Superfund, whatever it was, and then getting ready for a trial. Not parachute like two weeks beforehand, but oh, we got sued on this Clean Air Act issue, and now somebody with litigation experience has to figure out how we're going to advocate for our clients. And so then I would spend a year doing that, having a trial, and then forgetting all about it and doing the next thing. So as you know, I'm, I'm a big trial junkie. I mean, that <laughs> sounds like the dream kind of role at a law firm where you're sort of an environmental specialist, but you're also the litigation person in that particular area. So when a case looks like it's going to be teed up for trial, you get brought on. Right. Or even when the lawsuit happens in the first just, place. But yes. And those are all bench trials for the most part. Well, most of them are bench trials. You know exactly what the schedule is going to be, and there's not a lot of change. So you kind of get brought in, figure it out, 
get ready for trial, go to trial, and then move on to the next thing. And yes, I know you're a trial junkie and I know you would love that job. And by the way, you are too. You also love trials. And so when did you discover that you loved trials? Was it during your private practice experience? Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a DA or a public defender from the beginning. I did not want to spend a lot of time doing document review, all the boring stuff that generally people have to do in a law firm for a long time before they get to do the real stuff. And so I kind of went into it that way. I started working for a sole practitioner that had been at a large law firm, which I ended up at in the end, which is another story for another time. But he sort of threw me right in. He hired me. He said, show up at the airport. We're flying to Miami. We're going to a hearing. If you can read all these papers over the weekend, maybe you can argue. And that didn't happen because he to remember that I had not been sworn in yet to the bar. <laughs> Minor but, detail. Yeah, right. But the second time he sent me to Miami for another hearing, he was supposed to meet me down there and he missed his last flight. And he said, well, it's all right. You can do it. You can just go and handle it was a motion to compel that we were defending. We worked on behalf of a county down there. And I showed up in the Department of Justice lawyer against us was about 65 years old. I was 24. I was completely terrified. And I walked in and I just did it. And it went well. And we won. We were we were kind of always going to win, but it went so well that I immediately knew this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to figure it out as I go. And it's always going to be that adrenaline. Yeah. And as long as you're prepared, it's good adrenaline, not bad adrenaline. Right. Like no one's puking in the bed. Right. So that was kind of how I knew for sure that was what I was going to do. And I was just lucky to work for someone that didn't make me do doc review. He just sent me in to do things. I was taking depositions and I got to try my first case with him three years in as a third year associate, as a second chair, try lawyer in federal court in Miami on a huge Superfund case where the county sued the federal government. Okay. Well, I was certainly going to touch on your trial experience, including your very first trial. Trial lawyers always get ahead. Usually I save it to the end, but you beat me to the punch. So we got to talk about this now. So your first trial, you're in your third year of practice. Yes. And so I'd never taken an environmental law class. He put me onto his cases. We were the environmental lawyers as outside counsel for the Miami International Airport. We had this trial against the U.S. There was no way anyone thought it was going to happen. Obviously, we were going to resolve. It was about an allocation of responsibility and cost for cleaning up the Biscayne Aquifer. Mm. And I spent three years learning Superfund and water and science, nothing I ever understood before. We started the trial in November of 2004. And it was like the most thrilling thing in the world to set up the war room, to get all the documents ready, to prep the witnesses, all the experts. And, you know, we get to court on the first day and it's a bench trial and there's motions happening beforehand. And Mitch, who was my boss, was arguing them and he kept looking at me and asking me for papers. And the judge, Judge Martinez, said, Mr. Robert, would you please sit down and just let Ms. Mizrahi do the arguments? And that was it. I got to do all the arguments beforehand. Are you serious? Yeah. And after that happened... That's a great story. After that happened, he and then we had co-counsel from a large law firm down there decided that I should be responsible for putting on a bunch of witnesses. So I got to put a bunch of witnesses on the stand as a third-year associate in federal court. And then it was it. That was it. It was over. Everything I did after that sort of got me the credibility to do it again. So by the time I left private practice in 2012, I had tried seven cases, always as second or sometimes third chair, depending on the case. But 
going to verdict seven times in at that it was seven years at the time was kind of a big deal at a law firm. No one got to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And really exciting. I mean, you're right. The adrenaline and it's good adrenaline because you're prepared. But there's nothing quite like it when you get up in court, even to just sort of direct a witness. There's just like this immediate gratification that you get from pulling off this performance of something you've poured over for months and months. There's nothing quite like it. So you go in-house. Tell us about that transition. I mean, for sure, you loved being a trial lawyer and a litigator. What was that like? If you look at my Facebook account from the first year I was an in-house lawyer, you would see a lot of posts about me sitting on my hands in court because it's impossible once you've done it for that long to watch it happen and not be tortured by it. So it's torturous. Every job that I've taken as an in-house lawyer, either it was that way already or I made it that way, I was deeply engaged in all the strategy and the prep. I generally work for companies that are nervous and risk-averse, right? I worked for three sort of non-consumer products companies, trash, hazardous waste, chemicals, and mining. And so, you know, they take a lot of risk in their process, but not a lot of risk in their legal side. Mm -hmm. And then in consumer products, because it's all consumer-facing and public, we take a very active role in things. So I was lucky because I think if you don't get a chance to really engage, it would be torturous because I missed it, right? And so then it became, now I get to look at it from a different point of view, which is the whole reason why I went in-house in the first place. It's not really just about the trial and the law. It's about the business impact. It's about the cost. It's about brand reputation. It's about how to speak to the stakeholders at the company, the board, the SEC, and anyone that's watching. So it becomes so much more than just what is being said in court and the being the person standing up and saying it, I get to sort of put my hands on everything that's happening in court and the strategy. But then I also get to work on it from the business side, which goes far deeper than the law and the advocacy. That's so interesting. And I know you to be particularly hands-on because you have all of this experience and are a strategist. How do you sort of view, in addition to accommodating the business role that you just described, how do you view your role on, say, a trial team? It's different for everyone because I have people that have worked for me that manage trials. I mean, I sort of try to allow it to happen and I try to train people to do it, but it's extremely difficult. And their role is, so if you have an in-house lawyer that doesn't have trial experience, it's really hard for them to drive the trial. Right. So they come in and they sort of watch and they observe and they're they're really there to report back to headquarters what's going on and whether there are any problems or whatever the case may be. For me, I go and I live with trial lawyers in the war room and I'm there every day in court, in the war room. I look at every outline. I participate in the the opening deck and the closing deck. We mock everything. We mock the openings and closings. I work hand in hand with the jury consultant. The one I use is a good friend. We talk all the time. I had lunch with her last week. It's like having sort of an annoying, horrible boss in the room all day, every day. And <laughs> and they hate it. Like they really hated all the trailers. And I've been to multiple trials with the same team. They hate it, but they love it because they know at the end partially because of my experience and partially because I'm outside of it and I don't have any ego involved in it or emotion involved in it, I do bring things to the table that they can't see. And so as long as that keeps happening, I'll continue to be in that role. And then if not, they'll just kick me out, right? I mean, eventually they'll just all quit. That's fascinating to hear you talk about and so interesting. 
and I want to talk, I think, more about particular experiences. But why don't we start to hear your views on trial? You and I have talked about this before. I'd love to hear you talk about what you view as the most important element of, of a trial. The sort of obvious part is the prep and the team and making sure that all of that is is set, which is part of the responsibility of the in-house lawyer, making sure that that's happening. I think I know when you're in a law firm, it's different. But once you get there and assuming that you're prepared, it's jury selection, right? Because almost everything is happening there, right? And people think, well, you can pick a jury and you can change their minds and you can persuade them. But I don't actually think that's the case. I think all the real work that happens is in who you get on the jury and how their chemistry is with each other and how their chemistry is with the trial lawyers, which is why it's so important how to pick a trial lawyer in a specific jurisdiction to play to a specific jury pool. Because for the most part, you kind of know what you're going to get in New York City versus New Orleans versus Chicago versus Los Angeles. So that's to me, that's always where you get your best handicap on the end of the trial is right at the beginning. That's really interesting. And, you know, jury selection is often different depending on whether you're in state court or federal court or depending on where you are in the country. So some courts, of course, allow the trial lawyers to engage in back and forth with prospective jurors and talk about hypotheticals and, and things like that. And, and in other cases, you can't wait into that at all. And you're really just learning about what they do for a living whether they have any family members that might or friends that might create a bias or something like that. What do you view as sort of the most important information you can get from prospective jurors during jury selection? So first thing I just want to mention is that I generally recommend against trying cases to juries in the jurisdictions that don't let you participate. But I think that sometimes it's asking the questions that aren't obvious about the case, right? So like corporation bias is a big one. And kind of just talking to people about who they are and what their values are. If you get in Louisiana, for instance, you get the whole panel in the room and the lawyer gets to talk to them about whatever he or she wants to talk to them about. You get them talking, people raise their hands, they want to talk about things. And all of a sudden you're talking about, it's a product liability case and you're talking about church or you're talking yeah. about, or you're talking about education. And then you start to really understand what these people are about. And you can, you have people in the room, psychologists, which are jury consultants, to put them together in a way that you know you can group people that are going to be aligned. And then maybe you only have to convince one person, right? And that's better than be having a split jury, which you can usually see right from the beginning how they're going to split. Because now there's all research. When I picked a jury myself the first time in 2006, and we didn't have any of this stuff. Facebook was for high school kids. Yeah. Now we're researching on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, and you get so much information about people. By the way, I totally agree with you. I think it's rather frustrating to watch a judge ask the questions that he or she wants to ask and that be the end of it. In criminal court in New York City, for example, where I sort of cut my teeth as an ADA, you're allowed to engage with the prospective jurors back and forth. And I think it's just a much more fulfilling experience and opportunity to really vet your, your jurors. And I'm so glad to have you talk about jury selection as the most important part of trial in your view, because every guest to date has said that the opening statement is the most important part of trial. Most of the guests, well, all of the guests who've said that have said that because it's your first opportunity to tell your story to the jury. But in fact, in jurisdictions where you're able to engage with prospective jurors, jury selection is the first opportunity, not necessarily to try your case, but 
to connect with them in a meaningful way and ask the right questions that not only shed light on their biases, but might get them moving in a direction that will be favorable to your client once the trial starts. I think the reason for that is because you've probably only talked to people that are outside counsel. So they're not deciding from a business perspective whether to take a case to trial. It's already been decided for them. And for me, we're not even getting there unless we have some opportunity to speak to a jury or we know that the jury pool is defense favorable. So this is really interesting. And it begs the next question, which is how do you decide which cases ultimately to take to trial? Presumably you have hundreds of cases at any given time. So it's all math, right? It's how much is it going to cost to take to trial? How much is it going to cost to settle? What's the delta between those two things? And then you have to factor in the risk in terms of not what a verdict will be, because that's obvious, but if we lose, right, what is that going to do to our business? Paying on a settlement, especially early on, especially if it's significantly less than the cost of the trial just on expenses, is almost a no-brainer because the risk of losing is going to impact far more than the bottom line of the cost. On the other hand, what makes it really complicated, and which is why I love my job so much, is that we have to think about how many times we're going to get sued if we keep settling, right? So the only way to make this problem go away, for instance, or any product liability problem, is that you have to win. Win, right. Right. So we have to, as worrisome as it is to get an adverse verdict, getting a verdict in our favor makes them feel the same way. And so you have to pick, there are certain, so those cases, there are five factors. I think about those factors and then I identify this is the right case to take to trial. And I've done it. I've managed, I think I've opened 10 of those and gone to verdict on seven, right? So you have to identify, seven is a lucky number. You have to identify what cases give you the most positivity about you know, the chance of success. Like people say it's 50-50, but it's not 50-50. You know, every day you go into court where your odds are above and below that 50-50. This is so interesting. What is that decision-making process like? I mean, I'm sure it's iterative and it, it evolves over time, but at what point are you saying, okay, this is it. This is one of those cases and it has to be tried. I mean, presumably after you know, you've litigated the the case perhaps through summary judgment, if that's something that the plaintiffs have moved for, or you've moved for, and you're at the steps of the courthouse. I mean, it's, it's that far along in the process. It usually takes that long if it's a case that the plaintiff has brought that has any teeth, right? So if they have any teeth, then we get as far as we can, and then we start to really look at resolution. Some cases are so weak from the plaintiff side that the objective is to settle early so that you don't even have to incur the cost of litigating through summary judgment, through discovery, corporate rep depositions, document productions, and all of that. But for the most part, the cases that have a little bit of strength and bring concern to either side, they get right up there. And then you say, okay, so we're in the right jurisdiction, meaning we have a chance to win. So chance to win. We have the kind of plaintiff that's not going to be incredibly sympathetic to a jury. So we want to avoid that because that is what drives up the verdicts if we lose. And then there are factors within the case that matter. I mean, on these product liability cases, you have to look at the type of disease and the exposure to the product and alternative exposure, co-defendants, 
plaintiff's counsel, you know, the kind of plaintiff's counsel you're getting and the level of sophistication they have is really important with this because a lot of them will bring any case and then they'll try them and they don't really know what they're doing. So that gives you an advantage too. So those are the factors that we take into account. And in the 10 times that we've opened these product liability cases over the past, between since 2017 until now, I guess, so five years, it's always been because all of those things fell into line. And in addition, no one really had any appetite to settle. So then you go forward and you do it. And sometimes they go all the way to the end. And sometimes something happens, a motion or a witness does something. And then you find yourself in a situation where the plaintiffs are running after you, trying to settle with you. So, you know, one of the things that happened to me about a year ago was we had jury selection in Louisiana, which went terrifically bad for us. And that was a jurisdiction where we really should have had a good jury. Like we were, I was thinking I'm going to have a, a grade B jury in this jurisdiction, but the plaintiff's lawyer was incredible in voir dire. He just mesmerized this jury pool and we had an excellent trial lawyer who could not get them. He couldn't grab them, grabbed a couple, but for the most part, they were with the plaintiff's lawyer. And then a different plaintiff's lawyer from that team opened the case and he just blew it. He just couldn't get to this jury. They were sort of lower economic class, uneducated, and he just kept talking about science and super high level things that didn't reach them. And then our guy got up and he got to their level, talked to them like regular human beings. And by the time I left the courthouse and got a block away to the office, the plaintiff's lawyer was calling me and begging me to settle for like 5% of what they had originally wanted. So we never even got to the first witness. Wow. I mean, a day in court would have cost more than what we ended up paying. That's so interesting. Some people say it's not about the personality of the trial lawyer. It's how you put on the case and the themes that you utilize throughout the trial. It sounds like your experience has been different, that in fact, of course, it depends how you present what it is you're presenting, but the the personality and the way that that, that the particular trial lawyer connects with the jury is significant. Yeah, you know, this is the one place where I can't say one way or the other for sure, and I'm usually pretty... 100% black and white about everything, because I'm a true believer in sort of the connection between people, especially when it comes to trial lawyers. And I literally run around the country looking for trial lawyers that are captivating, that are mesmerizing, because people, especially now, as opposed to 20 years ago when I started this, they want to be captivated and mesmerized. We used to say that, that a juror has the attention span that lasts as long as the time between commercials and a sitcom. And that was a real thing. until social media came on. First of all, nobody watches TV with commercials because of Netflix and all that. But also, everybody's getting their information in quick bites, right? So they don't even have that much of an an attention span. So you really need somebody that's mesmerizing, charming, not offensive, not condescending, which makes it difficult because the old guard of trial lawyers can be extremely egotistical and condescending. And you really have to be at the level that the people that you're talking to are at. But despite that, I still think that you have so many downfalls in the case. I mean, we tried a case in Alameda, California a few years ago, and we couldn't get the jury at all. We had a medical doctor on the jury who should have been our juror, who was engaged and was writing notes down. And this judge was allowing the jurors to ask questions after every expert witness of the expert directly. And we thought for sure we were going to get there with this jury because we had actual scientists on the jury and we lost. 
And when we pulled the jury after, they said things like, oh, we loved Mr. X that worked for my company. And we love that guy that worked for my company. But we couldn't find in your favor because the science just wasn't there. So no matter what happened in the courtroom and how how much they liked these guys, they just wouldn't, they could, they weren't going to find in our favor because of that. Just because they like Yeah, it. So yes. it's a balancing act. Yeah, and so, you know, you win. You, the thing is, they're also not going to award punitives to the company because they believe that the lawyers are not liars. And so that helps. So you really still, so, so when I say I'm a true believer, you still want those trial counsel that are going to be that way, that are going to come off as honest people because it helps you even when you lose. But you can still lose despite that. No the best trial lawyer in the world that does everything right can still lose every time. And I yeah. think, I think it's sometimes it's, it's really hard for companies and CEOs and CFOs to know that, but it's true. Yep. That's right. I also agree with you, by the way, I think that, I think that the particular trial lawyers ability to captivate the jury is almost unparalleled. Of course your case matters and science matters, yeah. but you can't really choose those, choose those components. This has been really insightful and really interesting. And we've kind of gotten some of this so far, but what do you think is the most important skill of a trial lawyer? So I think a lot of it is no-brainers, like being prepared, being in the details, being captivating, like I said, having that personality. All of that is where you start, right? Those are sort of the prereqs. I think the skill that's most important for a trial lawyer is being able to be flexible and agile in the trial. Things are changing all the time. And being stubborn and kind of set in your ways is the downfall in any trial, because if you're not seeing what's coming at you from the side or behind and you just keep going with your plan, then, by the way, the judge and the jury are seeing the same thing. And also, so is your adversary. So if you can't pivot and go back and forth, then you're not actually qualified. So that's the most important thing. The other thing is being able to get along with your adversaries in a trial right? The things that people see more than anything else are feelings and not necessarily the words and the graphics, right? So they see when you walk into a courtroom, they'll see one trial lawyer shaking the hand of another trial lawyer or smiling at them or loaning them a pen or any of these small things that don't really seem to matter, really matter to jurors. And I've pulled 50 juries myself and they always talk about, oh, that, you know, that woman was so nice to that other man. And even though they were, I was confused for a minute about whether they were enemies. Right. And so I think that those two things together, they're the same. There are two examples of what plays on each other with the flexibility. It's hard when in an adversarial situation to stick to your story and to really fight the way your client needs you to fight, but also to be sort of graceful about it with the other side or gracious, I guess is the right word. And does that change when you're on the record? So, of course, right, the jury is observing these things off the record, you being friendly, cordial, sharing a pen, whatever. But on the record, I mean, to you about how forceful your trial lawyers should be making arguments concerning an objection, say, or? So I'm only talking about jury trials now. So I think with bench trials, it's different. But with jury trials, you know, every argument about objections is a sidebar. So yes, fine. You need to be aggressive sometimes. As long as you're respectful, I think it's fine. But I have never seen either one of my lawyers or a plaintiff's lawyer really show the jury animosity or negativity or a battle with one exception in one trial. 
And the plaintiff's lawyer basically lost the trial before he started because of it, because he was throwing tantrums the entire time. He wouldn't he wouldn't even pretend to be friendly with us in front of the jury. He acted with us the same way in front of the jury as he did without the jury there. And usually you see it the other way. And then the converse example is that in a deposition, a lot of times you'll see, in my experience, the plaintiff's counsel will take the corporate representative deposition really aggressive, really nasty, right? That's the whole idea of a reptile line of cross-examination. And then the second the camera's off, they'll be completely nice. Oh, can I get you some water? Complete humanity when the camera's not on because they want to be ruffling the feathers of the person on camera so that because they cut everything out for trial with the recording. And I've not seen that, not really ever, not even once in the courtroom, because the jurors, when they see it in front of them, it makes them uncomfortable enough. I think this is the philosophy that they don't, they just don't want it. They just don't want to see it. It makes them not trust you. And even though the facts and the evidence are paramount, it's the trust that you have with the judge and the jury that makes the trial lawyer as excellent as they can be. That's really interesting. And and I think I agree. I do think there are occasions during a trial, and I'm not suggesting that visible animosity is ever appropriate. But at certain points during the trial, if a point or a piece of evidence or an objection is important enough that the lawyer might emphasize it just so the jury is aware of how significant their position is. But definitely, I agree that you know being cordial and, and collegial is extremely yeah. important. So they feign indignance all the time. Right. Right. They all do it. I Yeah. I just never think that pointing the fingers actually works, even though it happens. Yeah. And with respect to the, the first thing that you said, being flexible, I've talked about this before with other folks. I think that's one of the things that makes being a trialer so exciting because you're not just performing a script that you've rehearsed over and over. You are in real time responding to whatever comes out in court. And no matter how hard you prep a case, you can't predict how evidence is going to come in, what evidence is going to come in, and whether it's going to come in. So being in that responsive position where you're forced to pivot, I think is is what makes it exciting and thrilling. Yeah. I think one of the red flags for me with trial lawyers, and one of the things I do as an in-house counsel is before I hire a trial lawyer, before I allow a lawyer to even speak in court on our behalf, I go see them do something else. I go, I will fly somewhere or drive somewhere to watch them do it. And if I see a trial lawyer reading from a script in any way, of course you have outlines for your witnesses, obviously, but reading from a script for an opening, reading from a script for any sort of argument, that's a huge red flag for me because you have to, you have to actually be there. You have, you have to actually be thinking about it. You have to believe it. If you need to memorize it, fine. Everybody has a different kind of brain, but the reading from a script is something that will just put everyone to sleep and your impact is gone. That monotone kind of way of advocacy. So I was going to ask you, like, how do you vet folks who you're considering as trial lawyers? And that's incredible that you actually go sort of see them in action. Yeah, well, um, I was lucky. My last job, they actually, it was a rule at the company in the legal department that you couldn't allow someone to stand up in court for you until you went to go see them do something else for anything material, like a summary judgment motion, a 402 hearing, or a trial. And so we used to go around and look at people before we hired them. But, you know, with the product liability stuff, which is the place where we go to trial the most, there's a group of people that know how to do it, right? And so you you just kind of go and pick from that, from that group. And it makes it a little bit easier. So you've talked about the most important part of a trial, in your view, jury selection the most important skill of a trial lawyer being flexible, being able to pivot, and then also being cordial. 
with adversaries. Do you have sort of a favorite part of trial to either participate in or watch? Watching closing arguments is always the best, right? If you've seen the opening arguments or you've read the transcript, right, you make a bunch of promises in opening and then you have to show how you've kept those promises in closing. So a trial is just a story. And that's what I love the most about it. And the closing argument, first of all, you get to argue. So that's the best part. But you get to tell your story in a real way, whereas in an opening, you don't. With witnesses, you're piecing evidence together. But the story is there. It's like if you think about it like a puzzle, all the puzzle pieces are coming together. And that's sort of the coolest part for me. So I agree with you. I think closing is both the most exciting part to deliver and also the most exciting part to observe. I agree with everything you said in that regard. So this has really been incredibly insightful, and I really appreciate how candid you've been so far. Of course, as you know, I like to talk trial war stories, and you gave us a little glimpse earlier talking about your first ever trial experience, which was incredible. But can you tell us about your most memorable trial experience, if it's different? Yeah, well, I mean, the first one was obviously the biggest deal and and really set the pathway for things. But I think for me, the most memorable would have been a trial that I managed as an in-house lawyer that we lost, right? That's something that, I mean, I won a lot of the trials that I participated in as an outside counsel. And we won a lot of the trials that I participated in as an in-house lawyer, but it's when you lose, I can tell you every minute of that trial. And it was 16 weeks long. I can talk about every witness. Every argument, every motion we won and lost, every objection, because when it was over, and and I knew we were going to lose, we knew it. I mean, there was a small little glimmer of hope, but we pretty much knew about halfway through that that it was going to go down. It was too late. There was nothing we could do about it at that point. We couldn't stop it. There wasn't even a dollar amount that we could have paid to stop it because everybody knew that we were we were in trouble. And so I sat through the entire 16 weeks and I got to the end and the jury came back and I sat in the courtroom and I had my phone out texting with, you know, the general counsel of the company and lots of people on, on standby listening. And when the jury came in and he started to read the verdict, the judge read the verdict, it was like the whole trial came flooding back. I remember it all more clearly than any trial that we've won or any trial that even a bench trial that we won months and months later on a you know on a on a post trial brief the interesting thing about that trial is that it actually appeared in a new york times fx special about 6 months later they ran a special on this kind of product liability litigation and they featured that trial the plaintiff at that point of the airing of the show had passed away. We didn't know who was going to be the feature in the piece. We just knew it was about our kind of litigation. I was sitting in my room. It was mid-pandemic, actually. So I think I was hiding in my bedroom away from my children. And I put it on and it comes up and it's about this plaintiff. And it's about this trial. And at the end of it, they had the judge read the verdict on the show. And it was like having this out-of-body experience, just reliving that moment. And I'll never forget like how it felt in the moment and then how it felt to watch it again later on national television. 
that I thankfully recorded and still have, just in case I ever forget that you can always lose. I think that the losses are so much more important than the wins because I can tell you every single thing that we did wrong and every single thing that we did right in that trial. And I don't think about the wins that way. The wins kind of go away and the losses stay with you. That's interesting. Do you think there was sort of one significant thing that happened or went wrong that resulted in the loss? Or was it sort of a collection of a bunch of things? I think it was a collection. And a lot of it we could not have impacted at all. Like the jury was very favorable to the plaintiff. And our co-defendant in that case made a lot of tactical mistakes that we had no control over. The verdict was going to be against them the whole time. And we just kind of were collateral damage. Right. And you can't do anything about that because I couldn't control another company. Sure. So a question that I usually ask is what lessons have you learned over the course of your career as a litigator and trial lawyer that you you would tell yourself before your first trial? And I want to ask you that. But with respect to this particular trial that was your most memorable, are there any sort of lessons that you've taken away? I think establishing the relationship with the co-defendant is really important. And and we did, we had it sort of in-house to in-house, but the outside counsel didn't. I think it's really hard for people to listen to each other sometimes. And that's what happened there. I mean, we had more experienced trial lawyers on our team than they had. One of the things that you should do before any case even really develops is to start thinking about how to plan for the trial before discovery even starts. Like everyone should have an evidence map at the beginning. If you can collaborate with your co-defendants on that, because, you know, a lot of these product liability trials are multi-defendant, then you can maybe get ahead of some of those things once you get to trial. If it's just you, one client, one defendant, it's a little bit easier to kind of control that context. But without it, it's that collaboration and alignment from the beginning in these kind of cases that I think that was the biggest lesson for me. And for the next trial, we did. And it went much better. And we had a defense verdict in 38 minutes. Wow. So that's not the only thing. There were a lot of other factors, but I think that it certainly helped. So you said something that's really interesting and I want to touch more on that you should think about or start thinking about trial at some point, even before discovery. So when do you start to think about trial? As soon as you lose the motion to dismiss. Right. So if you don't have a trial map, the bones of a trial map, some people call it an evidence map, trial map, doesn't matter. If you don't have the bones of that sitting on your desktop as the lawyer running the case or as the in-house lawyer that's a crazy person like me, before the first deposition happens, then you've already kind of lost, right? If you have a deposition of a plaintiff that is sort of form, right? Like you have an outline for it. That's fine. But you know what you need to fill into your evidence map to get it. You know from the plaintiff what kind of disease it is, what kind of exposure it is, that kind of thing. Then you know what your experts are. And so you just build on that map as you go the entire time. I mean, I equated in my mind to when you start a trial, the day that you start the trial, you start your motion for a non-suit. And then you just fill it in with the evidence that comes in, huh. right? So when you start a case, you start a trial evidence map, you fill it in. When you start a trial, you start your motion for non-suit, literally drafted. It should be drafted by the first day of trial. And then you're just plugging things in as you go. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think all of that's right. Okay, so now lessons. What lesson or lessons have you learned from your years as a trial lawyer, both at law firms and from inside the company that you can share with us or that you might have told yourself before your first trial? 
I mean, I think the most important lesson is that you have to be less emotional about it. I think people take things, first of all, trials are like wars, right? <laughs> I remember my first trial, one of the partner, the older partners, say older, he was probably my age at the time, but I was very young. He said, it's a battle in there. And by the end of the trial, you really know people like the best and worst of them because, you know, it's three in the morning, yeah. you're in the war room, everybody's eating right. pizza and Cheetos, They're, people are crying, there's a bottle of whiskey in the corner. <laughs> I found that to be true for my first trial when I was 24 years old, but I still learn it all the time. And it took a lot, it took almost 20 years for me to get to the point where none of it is personal, right? And it feels personal in the moment. Try lawyers are emotional creatures, right? It's part of the reason why I don't do it anymore because it's easier to manage it than to be in it. And so I think that all around as a litigator, that's the biggest lesson, but especially as a try lawyer, because you really have to have that crisp, agile thinking in order to allow your emotions to come out in a way that helps you as a try lawyer and doesn't hurt you as a try lawyer. I think that's right. And I'm laughing as you say all of this because I know it to be true. You know, that is late nights, eating Cheetos, pizza, whatever, being up till 3.30 in the morning. It's difficult to strike that balance, though, of course, because as the trial lawyer putting on the case or helping put on the case, you want to convey to the jury that you truly believe your client's case and, and in earnest. And in order to be as compelling as possible, you almost have to take on your client's position and eat, sleep, breathe it. But at the same time, you have to be careful not to let it sort of overtake you in an emotional way, especially in a, an emotional way that would hurt your client's case. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. To me, that's the most important thing. I mean, no matter how tired you are and frustrated and you've lost something, you still have to kind of have that. It's okay. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. I mean, people, I think part of the reason why I like being the, the sort of manager of the trials as opposed to the trial lawyer is that I get to bring that to them, right? I get to bring that calmness. Like, listen, even if you, even if we lose, it's going to be okay. And now have some Cheetos. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great place to end. Sabrina, thank you so much for your time. This was incredible. It was so awesome to have you here and to hear about all your insight and experience. Thank you for having me. It's a huge compliment. I am just so glad to have had Sabrina on the On Trial podcast today. Like me, she is a trial junkie. Even as an in-house lawyer, she's in the war room with her outside counsel, driving trial strategy, and even living off the all-too-familiar bag of trial Cheetos. It was so great to hear her talk about her career path, getting thrown into major trials early on, developing a practice of parachuting in on environmental matters headed for trial, and ultimately going in-house, where she now decides whether and when to take a case to trial. And hearing her speak about how she approaches trials from inside a company was fascinating. And it was also really refreshing to hear her talk about how she's a true believer in personal connections and the importance of connecting with and captivating jurors. And she offered some really valuable lessons, including staying measured while on trial, not getting too emotional, and being able to pivot. In sum, Sabrina is a wealth of trial strategy and knowledge, and she brings a unique perspective on trial. I hope you enjoyed listening to the podcast as much as I enjoyed recording it. Please tune in next time for another interesting discussion on the art of trial with another seasoned trial lawyer.
Thank you for listening to this production from Foley and Lardner, LLP. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and is intended as a general overview. The podcast does not constitute legal advice nor solicitation to provide legal services. It's not meant to convey a legal position of Foley and Lardner, LLP, on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. Any opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the firm, its partners, or its clients. The podcast is not intended to create, and listening to the podcast does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The listener should not act upon this information without seeking counsel from a licensed attorney. Foley makes no representations or warranties of any kind, expressed or implied, as to the content of the podcast or to its accuracy or completeness and accepts no responsibility for an individual who acts or refrains from acting based on information obtained from the podcast. In some jurisdictions, the contents of this podcast may be considered attorney advertising. If applicable, please note that prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome.